Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Hello, everybody. Wow, that's a weird voice you're putting on today. I thought it was masculine. Was it not? Did I, did I get that wrong? Okay, let me try it again. Hello, everybody. Okay. Masculine? No. Ah, oh, damn. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor the parent company Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. Grab yourself a double-double and an Anaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Jump, jump. Episode 63. Here it is. Holy smokeroonies. Numerically one higher than 62. Correct. Yeah. 63. Yeah, man. Before we get into this topic, we want to mention that at the end of the show, we will have an interesting update on the Granger-Taylor Spaceman case from episode 60. Oh. And I haven't talked to Scott about oh. this yet, so we want to surprise him with that. It's you. It, the update is totally that aliens are real and he was abducted. I can't wait. Shh. I can't wait. This week, we're off to Creston, B.C., a town of just over 5,000 people in the Kootenai region of southeastern British Columbia, Canada. Creston is situated on the famed Crow's Nest Highway, and it's 10 kilometers north of the Canada-U.S. border and nearest to Idaho. Mm, okay, yeah, be another beautiful little uh, town in the interior of B.C. As well as being home to a few actors and NHL hockey players, Quiet Little Creston has some other notables who are more infamous. Winston Blackmore, known as the Bishop of Bountiful, a polygamous sect that belongs to the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is an offshoot of the Mormon Church. Yeah, yeah, Winston Blackmore. Uh, Blackmore himself warrants an entire Dark Poutine episode of his own. Yeah. Uh, he was charged with polygamy in 2009, and yeah. we'll get to him one day. Yeah, one, one, 237th. He is actually low on the list. Yeah. yeah but it would be fascinating. It's, uh, he's kind of like Canada's Warren Jessup or whatever. Oh, yeah, well, it's yeah. the same church. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And actually, they thought that he might be the... Uh, 
successor to Warren Jeffs. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, jeez. This episode covers the events that shook Creston and shocked the nation in the early morning hours of Saturday, September 5th, 1970. This one will be a graphic one, folks. This was the day that a 31-year-old blogger, father of three, and local resident murdered eight of his neighbors in the small town, including five children. Jeez. This man's spree of mayhem fueled by alcohol and possibly LSD not only included murder, but sexual assault and cannibalism. Jeez, okay. His later capture, trial, and controversial plea of insanity would inspire the writing of a book, now out of print, called The Limits of Sanity by Time Magazine writer Larry Still. Okay, wow. So cannibalism? It's like, wow. And this was 1970? 1970. Okay. all right. Our research for this episode draws heavily from Still's research in that book. I happen to get a copy of it. Mm. This is the story of Canadian mass murderer Dale Merle Nelson. Yeah, it doesn't ring a bell at all. You would think that quantity of murders and cannibalism would be quite, would make this quite the uh, hot topic. But, but again, it's one of those stories that kind of gets lost to history. Yep, I think. Yep. Yep. It's almost you know it's forty eight years old. And this is true. Jesus. 49. Yeah. Dale Merle Nelson was never known as a happy man. He fought depression his entire life. Even as a kid, he struggled with issues of poor self-esteem, feeling excluded by friends and family, and even victimized at times. Mm -hmm. When he was sober, he was a decent father and kind, helpful husband. When he drank, however, self-medicating his demons away, Dale became someone else entirely. He'd reportedly beaten his wife on at least three separate occasions, and with a few drinks on board after a night in one of Creston's beer parlors, Dale was sometimes brutal and physically violent with family and friends, being remorseful when he sobered up. Yeah, which is typical but uh, of, of abusers, but that's uh, disgusting. Disgusting behavior. Dale was not a stupid man. People saw him as literate and intelligent, but to he himself, he was a failure. Mm. Dale loved hunting and the outdoors. He was known to be one of the best shots with a rifle in the region. Oh, okay. He was a rugged man, nose broken from fights, standing about 5'11", and weighing around 200 pounds. Yeah, pretty large fella. Dale had engaged in a non-fatal suicide attempt with one of his firearms at one point. There's not a lot of detail about what happened, but clearly he was not successful in his bid to destroy himself, making him even more depressed. Mm. Only a few months before that fateful night into September, Dale had been again hospitalized at Crease Clinic at what was then called the Riverview Mental Hospital. It's very limited names for mental hospitals, isn't it? Riverview. How many Riverviews do we need? Well, this was Riverview down here. Oh, it was the same one? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, I guess one. <laughs> yes, in British Columbia. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I know that I was still up in the interior. It is the one that you should be in. Yeah. Well, no, it's closed down. It, no, they were reopening it. I know. I just saw some. Some stuff about that. One of Dale's deep, dark secrets is that he believed himself sexually inadequate. He heard the other stories his logger buddies would tell, and these, although probably heavily embellished, made Nelson feel like he could not measure up. He felt he was more virile while drinking. This, coupled with his angry disposition when hammered, is what led to more than one argument with his wife, Annette. Jeez, okay, that's... sure. After his recent release from Crease Clinic, Dale appeared before Provincial Court Justice Harold Langston on a charge of assault on Annette. 
Langston expressed his concern with Dale's drinking and sentenced him to probation for a year, telling him to be kind to his wife. So that was the... Okay, that was like, just be kind to him. No, just be kind be, to her. Be kind to her, but that's like the... Okay, yep, yeah. Yep. All right, Langston, that's great uh, judging. <laughs> well, he thought it was just another, quote, domestic I, dispute. I know, in, in 1970, I know, but it still... It was a different it's like, time. It, it was a different time. It's just sad that there was a time when that was like how you dealt with yep. a, an abuser. Just, hey, hey, try not to be so beady. Yeah, don't be so beady. On the morning of September 4th, 1970, Dale drove about to a few local logging camps looking for work. There was no one hiring at any of the camps he checked with. Easily disappointed, Dale called a halt to his job search early on in the morning and returned home. Okay. Dale picked up his wife, her sister, and one of his daughters and was seen in the downtown Creston shopping district with them around noon. Sounds nice enough. Dale was inwardly excited. Hunting season was set to begin the next day. He was looking forward to the hunt and bagging some game. Okay. At 3 p.m., Dale entered the Creston Liquor Store and purchased a six-pack of beer and a Mickey of vodka. Hmm. Okay. For those not familiar with the Canadian word Mickey in relation to a volume of booze, it's around a pint or 375 milliliters. Yeah. Yeah. Or go watch the movie Foo Bar. <clears throat> yeah. Not allowed to cage you on it. Dale paid for his booze and went into the Kootenai Hotel Tavern. He was only going into the bar for a drink or two. He had to get to his sister-in-law's place to get his rifle. Once in the tavern, Dale met with friends and blathered on about hunting season while they downed beer after beer. After his tenth... Jeez. Okay. <laughs> after his tenth beer with his pals, Dale staggered up to the bar and bought another six-pack to go. Yeah, why not? He still had his first six-pack in the Mickey that he'd bought earlier. I just got to be ready, I guess. So much for staying for one or two. Yeah, well, no, one or two dozen. Right. Yeah. Dale planned to save some of this booze for his early morning hunting excursion. Dale and his two friends left the beer parlor at about 5.30, hopped into one of the other men's car, and headed to Maureen McKay's so Dale could get his rifle. They drank more beer from Dale's stash on the quick trip. Of course. Maureen had Dale's rifle a 7mm Mauser K98 bolt action at her place, as it made her feel safer from burglars. Although Dale smelled like booze, he didn't appear drunk and was jovial and chatty at the time. <laughs> Dale left after a very brief interaction at the kitchen table with Maureen and her 32-year-old aunt, Shirley Wasik. So she she was also there visiting. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I don't know what a seven millimeter Mauser K nine bolt action, but it it is. But it sounds pretty impressive. It is. Yeah. I've fired one. Oh. Uh, the shells and projectiles are really large. They're just a little smaller than a thirty aught six shell. Okay. And this was the standard service rifle used by the German Wehrmacht during World Wars One and Two. Oh wow! Oh, okay. So I have like I've fired one because my friend has a World War Two uh, sort of armory collected. I just got educated. There you go. At six thirty p.m., uh, Dale was seen in his vehicle leaving the ferry and headed back toward Creston after drinking some of his Mickey with the ferry operator. My God, who's the just everybody's drinking? Well, they're drinking when Dale's around, I guess. Well, and, and the ferry operator? Sure. Jeez. At 7 p.m., Dale put some gas in his car and bought 27-millimeter shells for his rifle. Okay. At around 7.30, 
Dale was in nearby Erickson doing some target practice, zeroing his rifle for the hunting season. So this is 7.30 at night. 7.30 at night with it's what seems like 15 beers down. And he's out shooting behind a uh, um, a local auto body shop. This is, oh my God. Yeah, and he's drinking with the owner of the auto body shop. Of course he is, because everybody wants to drink with him. And, and you, you know you're in rural Canada when gunfire causes no concerns. At right, right, right. Yeah, I'm so. Like, I don't oh, know. it's just oh, it's just buddy out there shooting shooting cans again. Don't know why I'm so hung up on the ferry operator having drinks with them. It's like, Let's move forward, dude. Dale picked up a second box of ammunition around 8 p.m. at Swanson Sporting Goods. He also got his die and press, this bullet making equipment okay. that he had in Hawk there. He'd pawned it off to get money for booze. Well, yeah, well. But he needed it now to make bullets for hunting season. Sure. Then it was off to the liquor store again. <sighs> this time, Dale bought a Mickey of brandy and a bottle of wine. My God. Dale likes his booze. He's got a problem. He's got a problem. I'm going out on a limb with that. <laughs> The liquor store clerk tried to chat with Dale, but he was grumpy and he said little. Dale took his booze and left. Also sensing a turn in his mood here. Yep. Dale then went to the King George Hotel Bar and he drank more beer there with other pals. Holy shit. At 10.30, the three went back to a room that one of the men had rented where they continued to drink more beer. I, I feel like I'm going to pass out and I, from all that alcohol. At midnight, Dale had a clear thought. Oh, shit. Hunting season had started, and he had game to hunt. I see where this is going. Just after midnight on the morning of September 5th, 1970, Maureen McKay was talking with another guest, Frank Chalur. They heard a car slowly pull up to a stop on the road outside, and then a car door closing quietly. The two heard footsteps coming up the drive and onto the porch, but no knock ever came. Whoever was out there was just standing there. Mm. After a few tense moments, the footsteps left the porch and started up the drive again. Mm-hmm. Frank Chalure went outside, just in time to see what he was sure was Dale Merle Nelson's car driving off southward. Interesting. Frank and Maureen chalked the encounter up to Dale's being on another binge, which he was. Not inaccurate, yeah. It wasn't the first time he'd acted a little weird. Little did they know what was going to happen next. Oh, I, just, I don't think it's going to go uh, uh, pleasantly. Shirley Wysick, now at home, was hyper aware of night sounds when her husband Alex was out working at the logging camp. She was nervous being left alone with the kids at night. Yeah, yeah I get it. Charlene, the Wysick's eight-year-old daughter, was asleep in the bed as well keeping her mom company as dad was away. That's really lovely. Seven-year-old Tracy was asleep in the corner bedroom she normally shared with Charlene. (sighs) Twelve-year-old Debbie was drawing in her room. (sighs) The sound of a car pulling up next to her fence woke Shirley out of a dead sleep. She looked out the window and saw a clearly drunk Dale Merle Nelson staggering slowly toward the house. Oh, shit. Shirley got on the phone and called Maureen McKay. She asked what to do about Dale, and Frank Chalure, Maureen's visitor, promised to come over as soon as he could. Mm-hmm. As Shirley hung up the phone, the pounding on the door began. Oh, I'm not comfortable. I am not comfortable. Debbie, the 12-year-old, yeah. came out of her room to see what the commotion was and was told immediately to go back to her room. Yeah, okay. 
Shirley, scared to put it off any longer, opened the door, and there stood Dale Merle Nelson, drunk as a skunk. I mean, I'm sure sure she knows him, but I'm sure she's she's not comfortable. Well, at he's all a with relative. This. Yeah, and, and, but I'm sure she's even though she knows, like it's I'm sure she was still uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Highly. Shirley invited Dale in for coffee, and moments later, another knock came to the door. It was Frank Schiller. Okay. When yep. the door opened, Frank asked if Alex was home. He needed a little subterfuge, so yeah. Dale didn't know he was there to ask yeah, yeah. about him. Yeah, well done, Frank. Frank could see Dale looming in the living room. <sighs> Shirley gave no indication that anything was out of the ordinary, so Frank, assuming all was well, turned and left. Hmm, shit. Twelve-year-old Debbie Wysick did not know who was visiting, but she could hear her mother and what sounded like a man talking beyond her bedroom door in the living area on the other side of their small home. Debbie snuck into the hallway outside her room, remaining in the shadows. She quickly realized her mom was talking with one of her favorite cousins, Dale. Moments later, from somewhere near the living room, Possibly in her mom's room, Debbie heard her mom surely cry out, No, Dale, don't. Debbie then heard a gurgling noise, like snoring, coming from the same area. Debbie snuck into the kitchen. Hearing someone coming, she hid in the shadowy space between the fridge and the wall, just big enough to hide her. She thought about jumping out at Dale and scaring him. It was a game they played together. Dale Merle Nelson entered the room, dragging the sleepy eight-year-old Charlene behind him. Something about his body language told Debbie that now was not the time for peekaboo. Find me a sharp knife, Dale bellowed. Nelson took a long knife with a steel blade and elkhorn handle from the drawer and began dragging Charlene back through the living room. Debbie left her hiding spot and began making her way silently to her mother's room, seeing Dale pull Charlene into the bedroom where seven-year-old Tracy still lay sleeping. Debbie quietly entered her mom's room and locked the door behind her. There was Shirley lying face down on the bed in a massive pool of blood, her hands tied behind her back with a scrap of cloth. Shirley's nightgown and kimono robe were pulled up over her bare bottom. A fire extinguisher lay across Shirley's neck, She'd been beaten badly with it. Shirley was still breathing, so Debbie tried to help her the best she could, turning her onto her side and propping her head up with pillows. She heard gasping and crying sounds from Tracy's room. Debbie knew she had to get out of the house. She heard more cries from her sister's room. She had to get help. As Debbie broke the window using the same fire extinguisher, and fled into the night, she heard footsteps running down the hall and rattling at the door behind her. Debbie ran as fast as she could in bare feet to Maureen McKay's just up the road. Oh, my God. That is intense, and how can you not put yourself in her shoes in the terror and feel like just, 
Oh, my God. Being 12 years old. And she wasn't really seeing what was going on. She saw the aftermath of what had gone on with her mother. But at 12, you're you're piecing it together. Oh, yeah. You're piecing it together. You you know, it might take a minute. Why is he dragging my sister? What's going on? And you go and you see your mom. What's wrong with Cousin Dale? The second you see your mom in that, and then you hear, like, gasping and crying from, like, you just, like, it. what a tough, like, oh. Because part of me would be thinking like, oh, run into the room and help her. But you you know that you're going to not win that. So, wow. Amazing girl for getting out. Let's take a quick break from this tension. Yes, please. Back at Maureen McKay's place, there was pounding at the door. So Maureen peeked through the window before answering, thinking Dale had come back drunk and angry. Yeah, no kidding. It wasn't him. It was 12-year-old Debbie Wysick. She was barefoot in her nightie and frantic. Yeah, just terrified, I bet. Poor girl. Debbie, crying uncontrollably, was barely able to communicate that Dale had been at their house and had beaten her mom, and there was blood everywhere. On top of that, she said she believed that he had hurt her two younger sisters. God, I, I just want to give her a hug. Like, I just want to hold that poor child. Oh, my God. Maureen, horrified, called the RCMP at the Creston Detachment. She told them that Dale Nelson had murdered her Aunt Shirley. In all likelihood, he had also hurt the two young girls still in the Wysick home. Cops sped to the scene in West Creston, meeting Frank Schiller and Maureen McKay on their way to the hospital with Debbie. Oh. They were the only car on the road. Officer McLaughlin asked Frank and Maureen to lead them back to the scene, so Frank turned the car around and headed back to the Wasick place with the RCMP in tow. Yeah. Dale Nelson's blue Chevy was still parked by the fence. Oh, jeez. Knowing Dale was drunk, armed, and violent, McLaughlin called for backup before yeah. heading inside. Yeah, yeah. After a few tense minutes of watching the stillness around the property, another car with, with two more constables arrived. Which for small town, in this, you know, uh, uh, these officers, I'm sure, don't see a lot of no, uh, murder or, ex- or, you know, like extreme violence like this. So it must be pretty tense for them and, and terrifying as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And they were probably the only three on that night. Yeah, uh, exactly. The three cops were cautiously making their way toward the house when out of the trees came eight-year-old Charlene Wasik. She was unharmed, but clearly in shock. Oh, thank God she's alive. Charlene was put into the car with Frank, Maureen, and Debbie. Police told Frank to take the girls to the hospital. They'd handle things from here. Oh, that's good. Inside the house, they found Shirley Wasik in her room, now dead, bludgeoned multiple times in the head with a heavy object. Jesus Christ. Cops surmised that the murder weapon was the fire extinguisher covered in blood and hair laying nearby close to the broken window. This would prove accurate. Yeah, what a scene for them to to come across again. A small town. You're, this is not what you're expecting. This is probably the first time they've ever seen anything like this. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's not just like somebody shot somebody. Like this is brutal. Yeah. What of Tracy, the seven-year-old? Oh God. The house was quiet. Tentatively, the cops entered Tracy's room. She was there, but the scene was grisly. Oh fuck. Tracy was dead. She'd been stabbed multiple times. She'd been slashed from ear to ear across her mouth, and she had been partially disemboweled. Oh, my God. A bloodied elk-handled carving knife lay beside her. 
Oh, I'm, I'm at a loss. How can, you, how can you do that to a seven-year-old? A seven-year-old. Let alone anybody. And yeah, like, if you're, if you're one of these cops, you're, you, this is traumatizing. Yep. I, oh. Police were concerned about the rest of Nelson's family immediately. If Dale was killing relatives, they had to make sure his wife and three kids were okay over on Corn Creek Road. Yeah. Dale's mother-in-law, Iris Herrick, who lived nearby, also might be in danger. Nothing more could be done for Shirley or Tracy. Investigation and eventual body removal could wait. There were only so many police on that night in what was then a town of around 3,000 people. Yeah, I'm, I, and I'm sure that was a tough decision, but the, I, the right one. The police left the scene, one car off to evacuate the Nelson home and the other off to Miss Herrick's. Also, it was time for off-duty officers to come in. They had a manhunt for a violent madman on their hands, and they had to warn as many residents of the area as they could. Yeah, good call, good job. After the rest of Dale's family was picked up and taken to safety, the cops returned to the Wasik residence. Shirley was there just where they'd left her. But the body of Tracy Wasik was gone, as was Dale's car. What the hell? So he oh. he took the little girl's body. Oh, no, no. So I, I wonder if he was like, in the house the whole time. No, he wasn't in the house, but apparently evidence came out later that he had been just standing in the shadows across the street watching the police. Holy shit. Wow. Yeah. That's terrifying. And when they left, he... You went right back in? Right back in. Yeah. At 1.05 a.m., Creston RCMP got another panicked phone call. A distraught woman was frantically whispering that something was wrong and police needed to hurry. Now, if you're whispering, somebody's there. Cops asked where she was, and she said she lived in the last house on Corn Creek Road with Roy Phipps. Before the line went dead, she said clearly... There's a man here with a gun. Yep. Yep. That'll, oh my God. And if you're the officers again here, you know, like, it's not like there's going to be a man. You, you know what's up. Oh. Two police officers hopped into their car and began driving to West Creston as fast as they could. The last house on Corn Creek Road was more of a shack. Just before the road turned into a logging road, this was the home of Ray Phipps. Phipps lived there with his common-law wife, Isabel St. Amand, her three children from a previous marriage, Paul, 10, Kathy, 8, and Brian, 7. The couple also had a child of their own, 18-month-old Roy. As police arrived, they noted the Phipps' home was the only one on the whole road with any lights on. The front door was wide open, and there was no movement in the cabin. Just inside the door lay Ray Phipps. Part of his head was missing, blown away by a high-powered rifle blast at close range. Around the corner near the stove, Isabel St. Amand lay dead from a single bullet wound to the back of her head. Police suspect she'd been fleeing her assailant who shot her from behind. Near Isabel, off to one side of the shack was a double-bed bunk and a crib. In the bottom bunk lay 10-year-old Paul St. Amand, the top of his head blown away by a rifle round. 7-year-old Brian St. Amand was in the top bunk, also deceased, having been shot in the head. The last victim found in the home was 18-month-old Roy Phipps. He was gone too, 
suffering the same fate as his parents and half-brothers. Cops searched the entire shack for eight-year-old Kathy St. Amand, but she was nowhere to be found. Signs pointed to her having been taken alive, and who knew what danger the little girl was in. Finding Dale Merle Nelson, and right now, took on a whole new aspect. Oh my god. This is intense. Like, I've... It's crazy that I've never heard of this. This is just one of the most uh, disgusting things we, we've covered. Mm-hmm. It's very tough. Yeah, these poor children. I mean, every the poor parents, everybody, but... Yeah. Oh, my, I'm sitting, like, I'm shaking, twitching my legs right now full of uh, hate. Dale Merle Nelson had murdered at least seven people now and was on the run. He knew the area well and could be hiding anywhere, living off the land. He'd absconded with the body of one girl and taken another, presumably alive. Cops had to capture him ASAP. Yeah, good God, yeah. More RCMP officers were brought in from all over the province, including as far away as Vancouver. Well, this is pretty big, so, yeah. By 6 a.m., all of Creston's roads in and out had been sealed off. While investigators combed for evidence at the crime scenes, armed search parties took to the surrounding area. So yeah, so it's got it, sun's got to be coming up, 6 a.m. Yep. Yeah. Finding Dale Nelson's car would be a great start and give police an idea about where to focus the search. But by 2 p.m., Dale's car and Dale were still eluding them. Oh, shit, okay. At 4.30, a break came. RCMP discovered Dale's car stuck in a ditch off the old logging road up from the Phipps' home. Entering the car, they found a lot of blood, oh, mostly on the passenger side, on the door, and on the floor. Uh. Two empty ammo boxes lay beside a hammer, also on the passenger seat of the car. There was blood and human hair on the hammer as well, making the investigators' hearts sink when they thought of Kathy St. Armand. Yeah, yeah exa exactly where my thoughts went, and... So I'm not surprised theirs did too. Those poor officers. As Dale's car was secured, officers headed down over the embankment searching for signs in the brush that Nelson had gone that way. Mm. And this is where it gets even more graphic, sorry. One officer came upon something in the underbrush only 40 feet from the car. He almost got physically ill when he realized what he'd found. It was the arm of a child. Oh no. It appeared to have been removed from the body by way of a sharp knife, perhaps a hunting knife. Oh, no, no, no. Further on, they found the young girl's head, another arm, a leg, and a torso with one leg barely still attached. Oh, my God. It's as though he abandoned it while he was cutting off that other leg. This was what was left of Tracy Wasik, the girl whose body had been stolen from her parents' home between police visits. I don't even, like, how am I supposed to react to this? Like, that's... He didn't make any attempt to bury her. No, there's no, no. Just, I, and, and of course, we we went over how drunk he was, so that, that's playing a role. But there's this, this isn't remorse. There's no remorse coming from this guy. No. The RCMP's ID team took care to document and collect evidence where they'd found poor Tracy. Yeah. The police searched the area for any more signs of Kathy St. Armand and Dale Nelson. They ran out of light as night fell with no new leads. Yeah, oh, shit. In the morning, the search began again in earnest. 
At around 10 a.m., about 200 yards from where Dale had abandoned his car, a searcher found the bottoms of a child's pajamas floating in Ezekiel Creek. Oh, God. A few yards from the creek, the police found a tree with a rope around it. It looked to be freshly tied there, and other evidence indicated someone might have been tied up there last night, but there was no other signs of Kathy and Dale. This is just terrifying and horrifying. I can't even imagine being in the, the officer's shoes, knowing likely what they're going to find and what they've already found. Oh, yeah. God. At around 4 p.m., police swung by Dale Nelson's home again. Maybe he'd returned. In fact, they did find that the plastic covering on one of the windows had recently been cut with a knife. Mm. Annette Nelson, Dale's wife, was brought in to the home to find out if anything was missing. And there was. A half bottle of aspirin and a can of peas had somehow disappeared. A hangover for the aspirin? Uh, weird, okay. Police outside saw a trail of flattened grass and broken twigs leading away from the house and followed it. There was Dale Nelson laying behind a log. Rifle leaned up against another tree just inches away. They didn't move in. Mm -hmm. Backup was called and Dale Merle Nelson was surrounded. Nelson was taken into custody at around 5 p.m. on Sunday, September 6, 1970, without incident, and charged on the spot with the murder of Shirley Wasick. Other charges would follow. Yeah, and I'm sure the question on everybody's mind is, where's Kathy? I mean... That's all I can think about right now. Well, that's the first thing that they asked him once he was in custody. Yeah, and they I asked would've. that yeah. obvious question. For sure. For Where sure. is Kathy St. Armand? Yeah. Dale agreed to talk in exchange for a drink of water and a cigarette. <sighs> Dale said Kathy was near the car, about 30 yards away from it. Is she dead? The investigator asked. Yes, said Dale. <sighs> he then calmly drew a map so police could go and recover Kathy St. Armand's remains. Oh, I've never wanted to hurt somebody. This one, I guess the last episode, but I, oh my God. They found Kathy where Dale said she was. She was face down, wearing only a t-shirt that was bunched up around her neck. She had a large stab wound in her back and her hair was matted with blood because she'd been bludgeoned in the head with that hammer. Oh, shit. Upon being turned over, Police found that Kathy had also been partially disemboweled. <sighs> a smashed wine bottle was found nearby with Dale Merle Nelson's fingerprints on the neck. Wow, so... Hmm. Yeah. Nelson was stripped of his clothes and they were booked into evidence. Dale was wrapped in a jailhouse blanket and read his rights. The RCMP began to question him. Dale agreed to talk after being cautioned. Hmm. They asked him whether he'd been at the Wasik house the night of the 5th and what had happened there. Dale said, It was too awful to think about. It must have been the LSD. Bullshit. He admitted to killing Shirley and Tracy Wasik. Dale also admitted to shooting the Phipps and St. Armand family, but stopped short of admitting to taking Kathy alive. He claimed he'd killed her right there that night at her home. Cops knew better, but Dale refused to talk any further, saying, it ain't pleasant to think about. Yeah, you don't say, well, then maybe don't kill a bunch of people and you won't have to worry about those unpleasant thoughts, you piece of shit. The next day, now under 24-hour suicide watch, Dale asked, will they let me plead guilty? Why wouldn't they? I'm like, weird. 
Later on, he said to one constable, You guys are so brave. I could have killed 10 of you had I wanted to. This guy, like, again, I'm, you're not seeing an ounce of remorse. No. Not like, I can't believe what I just did. I'm a terrible person. Like, just, well, I could have done more. And it was awful. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Well, then don't fucking do it. Sorry. <laughs> Nelson spent his pretrial time at Ocala in segregation. Hmm. After multiple examinations, doctors found Nelson fit to stand trial and felt he'd been sane at the time he'd committed his crimes. Although Canada has not executed anyone since 1968, the death penalty was still on the table in such a heinous case. Yeah, it's only two years after the last execution. Dale's willingness to admit the crimes, though, might have saved him from the noose. Mm. He later denied having taken LSD on the night the murders happened. He claimed he didn't want anyone else to get in trouble for a lie of his. He'd taken LSD before, but now claimed he had not done it that night. When he finally went to trial for a non-capital murder, the community was on the edge of their seats and waiting to hear what had happened to their neighbors at Dale Merle Nelson's hands. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know if I would... It was tough enough to listen to already. It was more horrific than they'd expected. Shit. Prosecution had lots of evidence of sexual assault committed against the two young girls Nelson had murdered and Shirley Wessick. Oh. There was even evidence he may have cannibalized one of the girls. That's insane. There's uh, some very specific mm -hmm. evidence in the research that I've left out. Good, thank you. If people want to Google it, they can. Yeah, thank you. Jurors and courtroom viewers were riveted by brave testimony by both Debbie and Charlene Wasik about the night of their mother and youngest sister's murders. The, how traumatized those two must be. For sure. And, I mean, they're grown women now. They'd be in their 50s. I'm sure there isn't a day where they don't think about this. Dale Merle Nelson's defense attorney argued insanity. Even without the LSD, this defense's psychiatric expert claimed he believed Dale had been suffering from a disease of the mind when he murdered eight Creston residents. I don't, I don't think that's an official diagnosis. You can, I have a disease of the mind. The jury was out for only 25 minutes before they came back in with their verdict. Mm -hmm. Dale Merle Nelson was found guilty on all eight counts of murder and sane at the time of the commission of those. Good job, jury. He was sentenced to an automatic life sentence on the spot. Good, good. Dale Merle Nelson died in prison of throat cancer in 1999. Well, I, I hope every bit of that throat cancer was painful and prolonged. Um, I hope he suffered incredibly, although nothing, no pain he could go through would mirror what he inflicted upon others. So, Especially those who lived. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I don't those two sisters, they they will they will be thinking about that every single day of their life. Yeah. And, and traumatized. I don't care how much therapy you get, that's not something you can get over. Nope. So that's the story of Dale Merle Nelson. A terrible asshole. He's one of Canada's worst mass murderers, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, There's another one that I've been putting off, the Shell Lake Massacre uh, okay. that took place in Saskatchewan, but we'll get to that soon as well. Okay. Yeah, this was this guy was terrible. This I don't know how I'd never heard of this. Yeah. But kind of glad I hadn't because yeah, it's terrible. 
horrifying, but uh, all right. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we have a bit of an update on the Granger-Taylor Space Man case from episode 60. Yeah, I can't wait to hear this. I got an email from Dr. Camilla Moir, a physicist who studied at Florida State University. Oh, cool. First of all, the fact that a physicist finds our show remotely entertaining <laughs> is really flattering. No kidding. Uh, but what she shared with us was really, really interesting. Okay. Dr. Moore wrote, I love your podcast and I'm writing about the episode on Granger Taylor. I'm a physicist who worked with high magnetic fields at the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory in Tallahassee, Florida. So when you mentioned Granger thought UFOs ran on magnetic forces and that he took a great deal of dynamite with him, everything clicked into place for me. Whoa. Magnetic fields upwards of a thousand Tesla, MRIs generate around three Tesla, can be reached by exploding dynamite around an electromagnet and compressing the magnetic flux. I was going to say all of this, clearly. She then gave a Wikipedia link to an explosively pumped flux compression generator. We all, we all were going to guess that. And she finished off by saying, it makes complete sense to me that Granger tried to achieve very magnetic fields to try to power some sort of UFO device he had possibly constructed by flux compression, and that it had fatal consequences instead. What? This is so fascinating. I know the podcast focuses boring on who Granger was and the impact of the town he lived in, but if Granger did try to make an explosively driven flux compression magnet... That would speak to his intelligence and ingenuity. That is so fascinating. Isn't that interesting? That is like, I, and I could totally see from her perspective how it'd be like, no, this all makes sense. Like hearing her describe, yep, what what he was might have actually been trying to. It would make because I, I I've been stuck on the whole dynamite. Yeah, like what, what was with that? Like you you don't, you could not have been trying to launch your truck into space and with, what a with weird dynamite way to kill yourself. Uh, yeah, a person with such. In, in, so to, for there to be a possible rational yes. explanation, to say rational is a bit odd because yep. the man's trying to launch himself into space, but um, that he could have rationally thought this may, this is like- This might work. It's pretty fascinating update. I emailed Dr. Moir back, admitting I'm a dum-dum and asked for more layperson's explanation. <laughs> Uh, and she responded with another link about scientists in Japan experimenting with explosives to study electrons in ultra-high magnetic fields. I'll post both of the links in our show notes. So I find it super interesting to ponder that Granger accidentally killed himself in an experiment. Which actually makes me, as odd as it sounds, feel a bit better about it. Right. Um, It's still, like, at no point in time should... Should one think using dynamite in proximity to themselves is going to uh, be a successful endeavor? But it's there's some comfort in knowing that he may have actually like it, it wasn't suicide. It wasn't like I'm trying just to just trying to do something. Yeah, yeah, that made some sense in some regard. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I passed that information on to Spaceman executive producer Jennifer Horvath. Yes. And she seemed super interested in what Dr. Moore had uncovered. Jennifer herself thought that Granger had just done away with himself. Yeah, which... You know, which was I, kind I, of the ending of that a lot of people didn't like. And you know what? This is kind of a different ending to the whole thing. It really is. 
uh, perhaps the information might help his family and friends cope a little better with his passing. So I hope they hear this. Oh, me too. Yeah. Wow. What a fascinating... God, this is what the stuff I love about the show. Like, you never know who's listening for one. Right? A doctor. A smart person. A physicist. Right? Somebody who maths. Somebody like... I don't think I could have a conversation with her. She oh, you would, probably could. She would instantly think, We had a, a conversation a with... Uh, with Jennifer from uh, that's true. She's Jennifer a doctor. Gardy, who's yeah. a who's a doctor and yeah. actually quite an accomplished doctor. Quite so. an accomplished doctor, and did immediately shut down all of my fears about Ebola. <laughs> well, my thoughts, but yeah, but wow, what how amazing is this? And hopefully that information can kind of gives more clarity to the family and uh, or at least something else to think about. Yeah, wow. We just passed two million downloads today, and uh, that's. Like bonkers, just over two months after we achieved our first million, which took over a year. Yeah. So holy crap. Yes. Thank you to everybody who's listened and continues to. Like it's it's not something we had uh, thought possible upon day one. Uh, it, it this this kind of a time frame. It's just I'm so humbled and I can't thank everybody enough. But I'll try. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank yes, you, I feel the same you. way. Here's some big news. Oh, yes. We mentioned it on social media yesterday, but not everybody follows. So Scott and I are going to CrimeCon from June 7th to the 9th in New Orleans, Louisiana. That's June 7th to the 9th, 2019. Woo-hoo! New Orleans. This is going to, I am super stoked. I am super excited. We're going to take lots of photos and oh, God. meet lots of people. <laughs> yes. Like, because both of us are photographers. Yeah, so. so get ready for an onslaught. Yeah. I'll do the black and white. Mike's got the color. <laughs> Scott gets to listen to me snore for a few nights because we've got like a, a, a room with two queen beds in it. Yeah. Well, hey, good news, Mike. I snore as well. Oh, good. So well, we'll, there you we'll, go. two negatives will cancel each other out and make a positive. One can always hope. Yeah. Uh, I attended CrimeCon last year in Nashville, and we saw a lot of growth in the show after that, so it's worthwhile to go again, I think. Yeah, yeah. This year, though, uh, we've been invited to participate in Podcast Row with some of our favorite true crime podcasts like Generation Y, Minds of Madness, Trace Evidence, The Trail Went Cold, Criminology, and many more. It is just so mind-blowing to be a part of those. It feels like it it kind of legitimizes us yeah, in what we're doing. It does validate a lot what we... 100%. Yeah. It, this is just all so exciting. It's pretty pretty darn exciting. Yes. So if you plan on going and, and you haven't purchased tickets yet, but please, please, yep, yep, please. please use our code poutine 19 for 10% off your ticket purchase. The more people who use our code, the more chance we have of getting some perks ourselves, like hotel expenses covered and even flights if we do really well. Yeah, which we could really use. We're, this isn't a, a, a huge profit-making endeavor. <laughs> no. So we could really, really, uh, please, yeah. Poutine 19. Poutine 19 for 10% off we'd, at CrimeCon.com. We'd love it if you could help out. Also, we'd really love to just meet you. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. that's what I'm looking forward to yeah. the most is meeting meeting folks, not yeah. only just other podcasters, but other true crime fans. It's the premier event uh, yep. to go to every year as far as uh, interesting true crime things. Like we had Ear- the Eron's investigator, Paul Holes, there last year. Yep. And they're still adding more people as things go. This year, we're probably going to meet Christopher Darden, who was one of the uh, OJ prosecutors. Yes. So, wow. So that wow. could be... 
pretty darn interesting to have a conversation with the guy who was trying to put OJ away. So. I, yes. Yeah. I'm super excited. And like I said, uh, Poutine 19, uh, get your tickets and, and come meet us. I think some of the, the highlights of the entire podcast is conversing and meeting with listeners. Yeah, love it. Yeah. That's why we do the live show before we do our- Yeah, uh, it's just an immediate way for us to yeah. interact and I, I and I love it. So there you go. Uh, check out our show notes on darkpoutine.com for more information, links, and possible photos of this case. There's uh, some interesting black and white photos of this- Oh, I'm interested. Case that took place in 1970. Uh, before we go, we want to give our shout outs to- uh, our Patreon patrons, and this week's good eggs are, well, Erica and Rochelle DeBrower. Oh. They live on a peach farm in Ontario, and they wanted to send us some jars of peaches. So I'm going to give them our address, and, and they can send some jars of peaches. And they also want go shit in your hat shirts. So I think I'll work on that next. Absolutely. And I, one of my favorite fruits are peaches, and I love like a, a can or a jar of fresh peaches. Oh love, my God. I love peach pie. Oh, can I live on your farm? They'd probably, they'd I, probably let you live there. I would get a tree. I would get obese off of peaches. Off of peaches. That's the way to go out though. Teresa Fleiss. Yeah. We're not sure where she, where's she from, Scott? Um, oh yes. If I remember correctly, she's from the Congo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's from the Congo. She was the only a Caucasian in a tribe of pygmies. Oh. Uh, but she was... Are pygmies in the Congo? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Okay. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Uh, look, Mike, which one of us is the... You're a scientist, Scott. Uh, I got to admit it. Yes, yes. And so uh, that... Yeah, she's from the Congo. Um, she uprooted. She decided... She was born and raised in, in, by pygmies. And she decided at 17... Is pygmy even like a politically correct word? No, yes, it's a, it, no, it is. Okay. I do actually have a friend, Justin Wren, who used to fight in the UFC, who's done a lot of work in the Congo and uh, Korea. Yeah, so it's okay. All it's right. A, yeah, I'm it's just okay. checking. It's okay. But the, yeah, so at 17, she was like, you know what? I'm going to get up. I, the, I feel like I need to venture out. You know a lot about Teresa. No, of course. I read her biography. Oh, wow. She's like, I need to venture out. And on a whim, she hopped on a plane and flew to Tallahassee. Oh. Yeah. And started a, a, a television network there, and that and successful, and that's why the book was written. It's great, fantastic. Yeah. So Teresa Fleiss, yeah. <laughs> Lon Snagoski, and he's from Cedar Ridge, California. Hey, Lon. Thank you, Lon. Lon, Lon. <laughs> Michelle Xavier from Mississauga, Ontario. Oh, Michelle. Thanks, Michelle. Amy Cooper from Davidson, Saskatchewan. Any relation to Alice? And I'm sure you've never heard that before. Alice Cooper. Yeah. I'm sure I'm the first person to make that joke. Megan Williams from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Oh, hey, Megan. We've got two Saskatchewans in the I wonder there. if Megan is from a little bit south of Saskatoon. I don't know. You don't, you don't know that song? No. A little bit south of Saskatoon. It's in uh, Slapshot, the movie Slapshot. Oh, God, I don't. I, I can't remember the songs from oh, Slapshot, my God. but what a great movie. Miranda Cornell from Seattle, Washington. Yeah, just down the street. Just down the street. Uh, Kathleen Megan. Yeah. Yeah, so Kathleen Megan, <clears throat> you, you've heard of her, right? No. You you don't know of her? No. There's a very, very famous documentary made about her. Okay. Yeah. Is it uh, is it abducted in plain sight? N no, good, no, no, no. 
It is not abducted in plain sight. That is a relief. The yes, she was. See ab- what I did there? I, I did. I did. I relieved myself. Yeah, you did. No, she was uh, abducted, hidden from sight. Oh. Yes. Yes. For she was abducted by um, pygmies. No. No. Oh, okay. I thought we were going to go there. Get again. ready. Get ready. Raccoons, Mike. Raccoons. She was abducted. Or as Ricky from Trailer Park Boys called them, Rakens. Rakens. <laughs> she, she was abducted by a, a traveling band of Rakens. Rakens. Yeah. it's It was so crazy. She was asleep in bed. Yeah, because they wander very. They have their weird little hands. Yeah, and they wander very like they're like so close and together. They wash everything that they eat. They do. They yep. they walk so close together that they create a pretty hard surface. Mm-hmm. And so they, as they were wandering, they went through her home, and went right by her bed where she was sleeping, and she just happened to roll over at the same time and rolled right on top of them. So it wasn't like they meant to abduct her, but then they just kept traveling. And she woke up seven miles away in a tree. Well, there you go. Yeah, I like. I my first thought was, how the hell do you stay asleep on a bed of raccoons for that long? But she did. She did, and thus the documentary. I, I abducted, not in plain sight. I really recommend checking it out. By Rakins. I by Rakins. <laughs> Shirley McCaskill from Somerville, Massachusetts. Just sounds like a and great McCaskill place. is actually, if you look up Giant McCaskill in Nova Scotia, you will have some interesting reading. Okay. There was a giant named McCaskill. Fascinating. Uh, Kyle Andrew Mooney from Colorado Springs, Colorado, also the home of uh, Kenda from- Joe Kenda. Yep. Yep. Lieutenant Joe Kenda. Yep. Uh, You know he solved- From Homicide Hunter. Do you know he solved every murder ever? All the murders. Ever. (laughs) Joyce Loveless, and she's from Prince Frederick, Maryland. Wow. That name sounds very uh, regal. Sam Green is from Wiltshire in Great Britain. Oh, wow. Hey, Sam Green from Great Britain. Lauren Paul. Yep. We're unsure where she's from. She's from uh, North Alaska. and uh, All of Alaska is north. Well, but no, you know, when you're there. Oh, she's from actual, like, northern yeah, Alaska. When, when, yeah, when you're there, you've got north, south, east, and west, Mike. That's how uh uh, directions work fantastic. and she she lived in north alaska and she what she does there is pretty fascinating is she a fartiste no she makes cigars oh i thought she so. makes she makes cigars which you wouldn't think from alaska but some of the best cigars come from alaska and made by lauren there you go yeah angie penland from fort collins colorado oh hey angie thank you amy van hullenar from Vancouver, British Columbia. From the hood. We know where that is. Yeah, we know where that is, Amy. Uh, you got to come to the next meet and greet. Lindsay Hen, she upped her pledge. Oh, sweet. Thanks, Lindsay. Thank you, Lindsay. Melissa Whitney, we're unsure where she's from. Uh, uh, oh, I know where she's from. Where? Oh, she's from uh, Tallahassee. We've already which, been to Tallahassee. No, but, you need no to- but that's why I said Tallahassee. Everybody gets this confused. Tallahasso. Where is Tallahasso? It's not in Florida. No, it's not in Florida. Where is Mike, it? Mike, it's in, it's in North Tallahassee. <laughs> Holy fuck. Yeah, it's in North. You're really reaching here, buddy. Well, there's a lot of these that come in our way. It's, it's good. Try, I'm trying to remain clear. I actually thought she was from Outer Sclavobia. 
oh shit, I confused my uh, Melissa Whitney's. Yeah, yeah, and, no. and she's like drives a dog team. She does, and when she's not on that dog team, she drives a Skoda. Yeah, which is a taxi. Well, it's actually the make of a car it, or a Lada. I can't remember if she drove a Skoda or a Lada, but they were terrible cars, and she complained about it relentlessly. Stephanie Ponting Baron uh, from Montreal, Quebec. Thank you, Stephanie. Yep. Josina Debray upped yep. her pledge. She did. She did. And I'm going to make some things up for her. I mean, I'm going to not make, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. Okay. Yeah. So she's actually from Sweden. Oh. Yep. She does look kind of Swedish. She does. She does look kind of Swedish. Yeah. Probably because she's from Sweden. And uh, what she does there is she breeds rabbits. I thought she taught fish to sing. No, no, no. Well, she did do that for a little bit. Oh. She did that for a little bit, but it wasn't her calling. She, she wasn't passionate about it. And so- I can see how that I know. Be. It gets pretty, pretty blasé pretty quickly. So she decided to breed rabbits and a special breed of rabbits at that. What are they? What's the- What's uh, special about them? Well, the breed they is called- five legs? The breed are called Fluffy Bottoms. They're called fluffy bottoms, and can you guess why? Because they have fluffy bottoms. That's exactly why, Mike. That's exact. And they're holy they're, shit. They're a very highly sought after breed because of said fluffy bottoms. So yeah, that's uh, that's Josina, Josina even. Josina Debray. Yeah, exactly. with her fluffy bottomed rabbits. Exactly. Exactly. Carrie Martin from Souk, BC. Oh man, that is the, so the Sook potholes are some, one of my favorite neat places. They're really cool. It's a legit thing. The potholes? Yeah. Uh, I actually, oh God, okay, tangent time. They used to have an abandoned, um, I went there when I was like 20, they had an abandoned, uh, resort built like up, like you, I was up on a hike with my friends and an ex-girlfriend. We're hiking. They wouldn't tell me where we're going. After like an hour of hiking in the woods, you come across this, like you're right at the top of uh, this plateau with a creek way down below or river but it's just like this abandoned resort floors walls oh, yeah. yeah it was I've heard about this place i think you've told me about yeah it. they they've taken most of it down by now because safety hazards but yeah so it's a i, I really i've always thought i i love sook because of that well there you go yeah katri conster from yoliarvi finland that's one of the coolest names it is kathy swim from carmel indiana cool hey kathy and last but not least, our friend Captain Howdy from Birmingham, Alabama. And I thought, according to The Exorcist, Captain Howdy was from hell, but, you know, another myth busted. <laughs> uh, we're myth busters now? I guess so. Sweet. Thanks so much to our patrons past and present for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. Uh, for those who signed up in late fall, swag is coming over the next couple of weeks. Awesome. You'll get your stickers. Woo-woo! If you want to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or for a one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. We could use it. And we did get some. What? Uh, from our friend Allison Lee. Oh, she's sweet. Uh, Carrie Shirley. Thanks, Carrie. And Kelly DeVores. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much. We also did get some custom dark poutine cat and dog neckerchiefs made by Sharon Brouch. She sells them on her Etsy page. Uh, we'll link to her stuff in the show notes. Both our boys have theirs on, and Scott has a couple for his dog, Tenko. I'm going to go home and, and toss one of these on him. 
They are so cool. They're very They cute. really are so cool. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, www.darkpatine.com, for show notes and other cool things. Uh, please give us a follow or a like on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Huge. Join us in the Umber Yard in our Facebook group. Please just search for Dark Poutine in groups and you'll find us. Yeah, and uh, check us out. It's a fun place. Full uh, of good eggs. Yeah, got to make sure you got a good sense of humor because things can get pretty... If you uh, have a shitty a, sense of humor, don't join. Yeah, remember, it's a true crime podcast group, so things can get a little dark. Yeah, so if that's not you, just don't join. Don't join. Don't yeah. join. But if it is you, it's the place, man. Please do. It's the place. Uh, we don't have any songs like the awesome one you heard last week to take you out. Oh, God, that was so good. But we are open to more, and we want to thank you again, Adam, for that. That that song was so good. Like, I was legit laughing out loud, cracking up. Because he, he, he mentioned me first, and I'm like, oh, is this just going to, like, is he going to, like, go off on me? Yeah. I'm like, is that why Mike didn't I tell me? I thought that too. I'm like, is that why Mike didn't want to tell me about this? Is he just going to go off on me? And then I'm, I'm listening and it's like, oh, that was just the best. No, it was, uh, it was the bomb. And, uh, that Nova Scotian art accent when he said Nanaimo bars. It's so beautiful. Love it. Love it. Love it. So until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye everybody. Good night. Bonne nuit. Oh, wow. French. <laughs>